Good evening. Uh, my name's Gordon Woolley and I'm the chairman of the Flight Simulation Group for another day or so. Uh, it uh, is my pleasure to welcome you on behalf of the Society here to the fifth Edlink Lecture, uh, on behalf of the Society and on behalf of the Flight Simulation Group who, uh, who host this lecture. We have two named uh, lectures each year, uh, and this one, the Edwin A. Link Lecture, is, as you'll see on your handouts, um, uh, in honor of Edwin Link. Uh, Edwin Link is, was the inventor of the blue box and uh, is known, uh, recognized as the father of flight simulation. His blue box um, from the 30s is credited with saving tens of thousands of lives by instilling, using simulation um, to instill the requisite flying skills uh, in the crews, uh, particularly during the Second War. And, of course, it's led on to much more advanced simulations and so on today, which we're in the process of, uh, of discussing uh, at our conference, which we're halfway through. And that, of course, is the rationale for the flight simulation group itself. This is the fifth lecture, and we have invited... Uh, uh, a variety of luminaries, people who are, have distinguished careers in the flight, uh, flight simulation community or users for them. So it's in that vein that I have, I'm very privileged to introduce tonight's speaker. Uh, tonight's speaker is, is John Farley. Uh, John has a very long and distinguished career. He started as an apprentice at the RAE. Uh, in Bedford, uh, sorry, Farnborough, uh, joined the Royal Air Force as a pilot in 1955. He is, uh, flew, initially flew hunters, but his talents were very soon recognized. He became an instructor and then went to the Empire Test Pilot School. Uh, he flew, he has flown uh, over 80 types, fixed wing, uh, and helicopters. Uh, and Barry Tomlinson tells me his first flight in a helicopter was with you in a whirlwind at RE Bedford at some stage. Barry seems to have made a full recovery, uh, I'm <laughs> delighted to say. Uh, of particular note was uh, John's career with the, um, with the Harrier, starting with the P1127, which was the, uh, the prototype which led to the development of the Harrier, a totally new concept in, in flying. Uh, and John spent many years in a, with a variety of, uh, of types of, uh, of Harrier, um, including working for a variety of, of foreign forces. Um, and uh, a, again, a particular note in flying the Harrier was that he uh, amassed in around 1982 two hours gliding an AV-8B, uh, the US version of it. Now, for an aircraft whose uh, gliding characteristics more resemble plummet than... Uh, graceful descent, that is quite an achievement. Uh, John is also uh, privileged to fly, uh, be invited to fly the MiG-29 and was heavily involved in the, uh, the F-35 uh, project uh, as well. So in addition to being a distinguished and extremely talented pilot, he has a variety of other strings uh, to his bow. Uh, he's a chartered engineer, uh, holds two honorary doctorates, has appointed OBE and awarded the Air Force Cross. Um, he's uh, heavily involved in the Association of Aerospace um, uh, Universities, uh, where he acts as the um, honorary president, I think it is, um, for them. And he also um, uses his talents to foster interest in, the, in youngsters in aerospace. Uh, and he is particularly useful or particularly helpful for the flight simulation group uh, as we uh, partly sponsor a university's um, simulation competition where the students um, program a flight simulator to um, uh, exhibit particular characteristics, and that can be a First World War type fighter, it can be a blended wing futuristic passenger dealer, or even uh, they've tried in the past human uh, human-powered aircraft as well. John's expertise is particularly useful in evaluating the flying characteristics to see how closely uh, they've got to matching uh, what their intended target is. And that, again, provides tremendous stimulus for interest in flight simulation, as well as drawing together a variety of other disciplines uh, that simulation calls on uh, aerospace disciplines, teamwork, and, and that sort of thing uh, as well. And no introduction of John would uh, would go without mentioning the Yeva steam laundry, which um, uh, I have to confess um, intrinsically means nothing to me, but John might be pressed to tell us a little bit more about it uh, at some stage. So without 
uh, more ado, may I introduce um, today's distinguished uh, speaker for the EdLink lecture, John Farley. Thank you very much, Gordon. I don't know who that was you were talking about, but I don't recognize him. Um, in fact, uh, I've got a couple of notes here about um, EdLink. And if you don't mind, everyone, I would just like to, um, just like to go through them. If anyone deserves the title of Mr. Simulator, it is, of course, Ed Link. He was a remarkable talent and a pioneer in aviation, underwater archaeology and ocean engineering. However, as Gordon said, he's most remembered for inventing the flight simulator that he patented in 1929. Ed fitted cockpit instruments as standard equipment to his design, and blind flying training was started by the Lynx at their flying school in the early 30s. The Model C followed in 1936, and this was able to rotate through 360 degrees, which allowed a magnetic compass to be fitted. While the various instruments, they were operated either mechanically or pneumatically. Now, with further refinements, the link trainer became a simple form of analog computer, fitted with a full set of instruments to guide the pilot on an imaginary flight. The simulated track was automatically recorded and traced by a three-wheeled course plotter across paper or a map on the instructor's desk, and you can see the crab here. I beg your pardon, a plotter became known as the crab, and you can see the crab here. Between the cockpit and its turntable were four supporting bellows, and these were inflated or deflated by a vacuum system. Its valves were operated as the pupil moved the control column to create the sensation and feel of flying. After a string of accidents in the early 1930s, the United States Army Air Corps ordered six of Ed's flight trainers for use in pilot training. The acceptance of these devices by the Army Air Corps primed the pump and pilot training organizations worldwide began to clamor for flying training machines. Thus started the now multi-billion dollar flight simulation industry. You may be able to see that the instructor here is in RAF uniform. Link trainers were also sold to Germany and a typical Luftwaffe bomber pilot over London in 1940 had spent 50 hours in one of these things. Finally, this picture of Ed and his wife Marion Clayton about to commit aviation gives a good feel for those pioneering times. I don't know about you, but I feel that ladies who go flying in skirts have much more style than those in jeans. Okay, it's cabaret time. In the 1950s, the RAF used the Piston Provost to, as the basic trainer for its pilots. And we then did our advanced training on the Vampire. Now, if you then got selected to go to fighters, you went to hunters in, in those days. The Hunter Operational Conversion Unit gave me my first experience of a simulator. That was in 1958. They took a hunter front fuselage and they chopped that bit out and they dumped it on the floor and they made the transparencies opaque. So what you were doing was flying a hunter on instruments as if you were in cloud. Now not everything in this cockpit worked but the majority of the important things did. We had three trips in this thing before you then went and flew the real thing. And of course the real thing, which is not really the topic of what we want to talk about tonight, was quite a step forward from the vampire in terms of performance. It felt a bit like a spaceship. However, you got three flights of this simulator and off you went. Well, about a month later, when we're halfway through the course or something, I got a very bad cold and my instructor said to me, John, go back to the box today and uh, do something down there to keep yourself amused. So I went back to the simulator and the instructor said to me, all right, okay, uh, 
What I want you to do is to take off from here, here being Chivana, go up to Valley, go down to Cold Rose, back to Chivana. A typical triangular cross-country exercise. Go and plan it and then fly it at 40,000 feet for me. So I went away and did my planning. Came back, got in the box. He said, OK, now I'm going to give you the odd emergency while this is all going on. And if you take the right corrective action, I shall turn the emergency off. If you get it wrong, I'll leave it on. So off we went. And I was doing very well. I was cocky, I was overconfident, I was a nasty, brash little bastard. And uh, and I thought I knew everything. And I had got the engine stop, stop, cock when it surged, I got it relit and all that sort of stuff. And I'm on the third leg back to Chivana thinking I've done very well indeed. When I happened to notice at the corner of my eye that the magnetic doll's eye that used to go black, white, black, white, when you breathed, showing that oxygen was flowing, had stopped. Well, I realized that at that height, the airplane was at 40, the cabin in those days in fighters was not much pressurized, and so the cabin was up at 32, 33. I knew I had only got seconds of useful consciousness without oxygen. So I did the appropriate drills, checking the contents, checking the pressure, turning on the emergency flow and so on. None of this had any effect. The doll's eye was still black. So I realized I've got to pull, roll on my back, pull through, go straight down. And then the panic set in. I'd got this cold. I couldn't possibly dive at that rate of descent. I was going to bust all my sinuses. And I started groping in my flying suit pocket for one of these nasal sprays, you know. And at that point, I thought, bloody hell, Farley, you're in a box, you see. So I, I finished off and I got out of it and I felt very silly. If we fast forward now for six years, Aeroflight, where I was now a young junior test pilot, was getting a couple of lightnings. And so before we could fly them, we were sent off to the then Lightning OCU to fly their simulator to show that we had studied the emergencies from the aircrew manual. The Lightning simulator looked exactly like the Hunter one. Chopped off behind the cockpit, flat bottom, dumped on the floor. Main difference was everything worked in this simulator. Radar, everything. And I'm just waiting my turn to get in the box and the chap in it was doing a standard emergency trip. He'd had one engine fail, mechanical failure, he'd had to shut it down. He's on a single engine GCA at night in this thing. And the instructor gave him a reheat fire on his one good engine. Now, a reheat fire meant that there was a far warning sensor gone off in the reheat bay. Now, you might think, so what? You'd hardly need reheat on final approach. But, it was a big problem with lightnings at that time, and a fire there, if it was real, would burn through the elevator control in seconds. And I mean, you were literally left with nothing. In fact, the most recent lightning to crash in South America, I believe, excuse me, South Africa, had this problem. And so this chap, when he was given his reheat fire, he pushed out, a, he's about three or four hundred feet on finals at night, GCA. He pushed out a beautiful Mayday call, perfect, and said he was ejecting. And then we heard this scream, this absolutely awful scream. Because when the chap tried to eject, he couldn't move the handle because he'd forgotten to take the pin out when he did his cockpit checks. So he got out, again, feeling very sheepish. But at that point, I now started to realize that some pilots, when they are in simulators, if you load them up enough, they forget they're in the simulator and they think they're in the real thing, which, of course, is wonderful, both from a training point of view and also from a research point of view. But equally... I learned that some pilots can never treat a simulator as they would an aeroplane. We had another pilot at Bedford, and he was flying on a Concorde, sorry, a 
Comet Takeoff Director. This is an instrument that the boffins in the 1960s had dreamt up to help people take off, survive engine failures, that sort of thing. The aim of the game was just to keep your wings level and stay, well not keep your wings level, stay dead on the runway heading as you climbed out, regardless of what else was going on around you. You followed the pointers and so on. Well this particular chap, he had the most accurate uh, history of holding heading, the runway heading of all of the pilots on the trial. And when they looked at the traces, he did not use the aileron. So they said to him, hey, what's, what's going on here then? Why don't you use the aileron? Oh, he said, the easiest way of controlling the heading in this thing, he says, to use your feet. So you see, he was not treating it like an aeroplane. And he was just one of those people psychologically, uh, you know, unable to handle this simulator thing and believe it was real. I dare say it's a sort of top hat curve, and I dare say I was at one extreme and he was at the other, and there's a bunch of people in the middle, of course. But um, I do believe, because of this variation in pilots' behaviour, that, in my view, when simulators are used for research, the results do need to be interpreted by the simulator team in much the same way that wind tunnel staff have to interpret results from model tests. After all, a model in a wind tunnel is not the same thing as a large full-sized aeroplane at 40,000 feet. Now, with any simulator, assuming the model is correct, a fixed base one will always be harder to fly than the real thing because you have no seat of the pants cues. They are missing. Now this is a picture of Jack Henderson. He was the CEO of Aeroflight at Bedford when I went there. And 17th of August 1961 and he had just done the first flight on the Handley Page 115 which had been delivered unflown to Bedford. For, for Jack to kick off the RE program. Now, why do I mention this? Well, the 115 was a very slender delta, about 76 degrees of sweep. It was a prototype designed to look at the expected unpleasant lateral control handling characteristics of a slender delta. And the RAE wanted, if possible, this is nearly 10 years before Concord, wanted, if possible, to to use a slender delta because it was the obvious thing for the crews. But could people take off and land in it? And there was some doubt about controlling an unstable Dutch roll in, in this class of vehicle. So they decided they would build this single-seat research prototype and uh, and it would be flown at Bedford on the standard research programme. Well, not surprisingly, um, Aeroflight decided they would simulate the handler characteristics um, before Jack flew it and uh, let him fly the simulator to get used to it. Well, to be honest, Jack could not really control that simulator, and it, in, laterally. And, and it was considered by the boffins of the day, a significant percentage of the, boffin of the boffins of the day, that this really made it too dangerous to risk flying this aeroplane. However, Jack knew, he knew that fixed base was bound to be harder than real live motion cues. So he flew it, and the aeroplane turned out to be an absolute kiddie car. It really was a very easy aeroplane to fly once you had those seat-of-the-pants cues. Now next I'd like to talk a little bit more about visual displays of the outside world and motion. The Aeroflight simulator that was in use when I joined them as a newly qualified TP in December 63 was this one. It had two visual displays. It was inside a dome on which a horizon line was projected round the dome. And in the cockpit, you may be able to see in this picture, there was a TV image of a model world somewhere else. Now, in those days, the model following technique, which many of the simulator experts in this room will know all about, of course, 
was the way, the brand new way of generating a real world display outside the outside the box. No more hunt and lightning type things. This was going to have the ability to fly the simulator like it was an aeroplane, looking out the window. So people made these models and you can see one mounted vertically there and the apparatus is is allowing a small television camera to move about over that model of the world uh, according to how the pilot flew the aeroplane. That is a picture of the actual model world that uh, Bedford used. And there's a rather better picture of a bit of the model. The model was very realistic. I, I, I can't remember the scale. I think there was one of 700, another one of 7,000. Um, little tiny houses, little tiny trees, you know, the whole thing modelled. And uh, you might think, well, golly, isn't that good? Well, yes and no. These early outside world displays were a huge step forward from the Hunter and Lightning that I mentioned. But the lag issues were serious. I mean, when the pilot manoeuvred the aeroplane, this great heap of equipment had to manoeuvre the TV camera. And, yeah, okay, it responded pretty quickly, but there was a lag. And uh, that lag is, is very serious. Imagine, those of you who are not perhaps pilots and are not associated with simulators, uh, especially with my wife and daughter, if you're driving up the uh, motorway and... You, you, you know, you know, you can see you need a little bit of left wheel. Well, I'm sorry, but this motor car has lag. And so is a small fraction of time before the left wheel comes on. Well, of course, in that, in that fraction of lag, you realize it's not doing anything, so you put on some more. Now when it bites, of course, you've got too much. And so you do this weaving process up the motorway. So lag is a bad news in any control system. And a visual world is part of a control system. Sorry for for teaching a lot of grannies to suck a lot of eggs. Um, in the mid-1960s, the hovering of jet airplanes became a hot topic. And uh, there was much experimentation to optimize their reaction controls. What was the right mix of sensitivity, power, forces, aircraft angular response, and so on? Now, NASA very reasonably decided fundamental aeronautical research was needed to produce a Bible to enable aircraft designers to get it right. NASA wanted to ensure that the weak but vital motion cues in the hover were available in their simulator and did not need to be washed out as quickly as in a normal motion base. So they built a six-degree of freedom base that operated in an 18-foot cube. Now, 18 feet of sway, heave, and surge was big stuff in those days. And because of my P11 27 and Harrier experience, I was invited over to participate in their research. This is the entrance hall, and the bloke on the right there is a bloke called... Uh, Dick Culpepper, who we have been working with, he was actually from Langley, and this simulator was at Ames. We've been working at Bedford on something, and so when he heard I was going to Ames, he came over and uh, and helped host me. And this is this is 1969. Well, that's a picture of part of the simulator. The motion display, you can get a much better feel for it here. To, to give this 18-foot cube thing w was considerable. Now, for a visual display, they open the hangar doors and they use the car park outside. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Anyhow, I got in this thing, and after a few minutes of flying, I considered it was a total disaster. Now... What they were trying to do, they asked a whole range of pilots to hover it. Keep it still. And they gave them a variety of different uh, controls with which to do this, a variety of different types of stabilization, a variety of different control powers, whatever. The sort of thing you would expect in any research program. And, and they debrief them and so on. They also measure the pilot's performance. So they were looking 
to optimize whatever these variables were. Now, why did I think it was a disaster? Because this motion base, whenever, say you set off sideways, it sounded like an underground train leaving the station. Now, to have a queue in a simulator that is not present in the circumstances you're trying to simulate is an absolute sin. How did they know whether any of their subjects had, if not deliberately, just unconsciously used the various noises that the motion base made to, to help them zero everything? Well, it took several days to go through all the exercises that these chaps wanted you to do. And in the odd few moments to spare, while the, the system was working, and they said, hang on a minute, sort of thing, I taught myself to hover this thing with my eyes shut. Just by zeroing the noises. And at the end of the week, I said, oh, this before I go home, do you mind if I hover it with the door shut? And they said, oh, you can't do that. All sorts of people have tried it. It's hopeless. Um, you drive yourself crazy with the doors, you know, thrashing around in front of you. So I said, well, just indulge a silly little Englishman and let me have a go. So I had a go, and I hovered it for 30 seconds with my eyes shut, and I thought, that's enough. And, uh, and I said, okay, fine. Went back into debrief. How did you do that? And so I did the Jekyll and Hyde thing, you know, and had this great big rant about, don't you blokes ever listen to your motion base? And this whole program you're, you're doing is totally valid. Well, I, I wasn't asked back, of course, but <laughs> if, if, if we now, if we now fast forward for another ten years, uh, we are, we, hawkers at Dunsfold, were making serious preparations to do something called a sea harrier. Now, I'd flown the ordinary land-based Harrier a fair bit from a variety of ships. And I felt that we could improve the aircraft's handling from its reaction controls, especially laterally, if we increase the sensitivity of these lateral controls. Because landing on a ship that's doing all sorts of things is quite different to a bit of concrete in the corner of the airfield. Fine. I decided that I wanted to double the sensitivity. In other words, take only half the time to get my hand across the cockpit when I felt it needed something. Take half the time because it had only got to go half as far. And uh, I was fairly sure this would be a big improvement. Went off to see our man, um, the aerodynamics and uh, reaction control man at Kingston and said, Robin, hey, look, um, I'd like to double the lateral sensitivity. So he reaches into his book, into his uh, shelf, bookshelf, pulled down this NASA tome. I said, Robin, I've told you about that bloody book. I don't want to know about it. He said, it's all we've got. And uh, uh, he, he showed me this page. And he said, that's where the Harrier is, and that's where you'll be way outside the acceptable boundaries in this book if we double the sensitivity. So, I mean, I'd thought all this through. I knew this would happen. And so I pointed to a diagram he got on this wall, which was one of these schematics, which showed the whole of the control system, the flying control system, in a two-seat Harrier. Uh, I said, what are you afraid that if we do double it, will go unstable and crash. He said, yes, that's right. I said, well, look, if you take that link, that one there in the back seat of the two-seater, half its length, you'll double the sensitivity in the back cockpit, you leave the safety pilot in the front. That's a good idea, he said. Um, I said, well, can we fly it this afternoon? And he looked at me as if I was stupid. He said, well, we'll have to make the bit, we'll have to get it approved, and you know. And I said, oh dear, oh dear, you blokes do take a long time up here at Kingston. Look, I'm flying an instrumented single-seater this afternoon and I'm going to fly it with double the lateral control sensitivity. And he was so surprised at this stupid remark I made, he said, how? And I said, by moving my hand halfway down the stick. 
And that I did, and it was delightful. And I said to the other guys at Dunsfold, any time you're flying over the next few days, slide your hand down the stick and see what you think of that, because I think it's what we should have. And everybody thought it was much better. I'm sorry, that was a, that was a bit of a rant. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, I think simulators that have false cues, they are, they are dangerous bits of kit. Right, um, Another attempt at simulating motion during that era was the Mac Air motion base. Now this was about trying to match the onset G-rates experienced in fighters. It had five degrees of freedom. It didn't have surge. Now, I mention this because it did give you, or potentially could give you, a very rough ride. People mentioned things like 6G and so on momentarily. And it was such a, such a, a fairly wild motion base that only pilots were cleared to operate it. And of course when the, when the thing was, the canopy was slid back, you were in the dark and you were just flying whatever visual display they gave you and so on. I, and I was in it, uh, see the time on the wall there, I don't know, nearly 10 o'clock. Well, that's night time, not daytime, because we're, Harrier program at McDonnell Douglas in 1971 was very much the third program. The uh, F-15 and the F-18 were numbers one and two. We didn't get much priority. However, uh, I was in there trying to help the McDonnell Douglas jump jet boffins calibrate their model. Um, so I was doing Harrier model. I was doing lots of the standard sort of flight test stuff where you do steady heading side slips and then you do stick jerks and then you do rudder kicks and all this stuff ad nauseum. Snag was you couldn't see where you were in the motion base limits. And so this is the only simulator I've ever flown in where I was much more scared than doing the thing for real in the airplane. You'd be at 40,000 feet in the airplane, give it a good old rudder kick, so what? Let the airplane go all over the sky. This thing wallop into the side of the wall, and you didn't know it was coming. Um, in, interesting experience. Um, now, the next unlikely group of activities involved the Black Hawk helicopter and the F-14. And, uh, and an Evans and Sutherland, a company, uh, visual display. Now, all of this was because in 1979 I flew a certain Mr. Marr in Hawker's two-seat Harrier demonstrator GV2O. Now, Mr. Marr was the number two man in the Chinese fighter command. And he came over and wanted to fly the Harrier. He wanted to do one of each of the V-Stall maneuvers that it's capable of, blah, 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 blah. You can imagine. So we did all this. And that, by the way, is the subject of a separate three evenings chat, how you do that sort of thing with somebody who doesn't speak English, you don't have Chinese, There isn't. you haven't even got a common number on a piece of paper, you know, you think about it. Um, so, but importantly, when we started talking seriously with them, because he was very impressed with the aeroplane after his trip, and I, I finished up out in out in China talking to them about a potential contract. Importantly, they wanted us to supply a simulator suitable for teaching. Teaching V-Stall handling techniques. Now, I felt that the sim industry at that time had not developed machines capable of doing this on three counts. The lag that were present in the visuals, no short takeoff acceleration cue. Now, short takeoff is what you do when you're a bit over vertical takeoff weight. But it's still going to be a jolly rapid axel on the ground because you're probably got a thrust to weight ratio of 0.9. And so you're going to be accelerating very nearly 1G and having to pick off a nozzle rotate speed and so on and so forth. That, that acceleration cue is quite quite disturbing for youngsters. And we didn't have two-seaters in the beginning, two-seat harriers in the beginning. And finally, there was the quality of the visual scene, because when you're hovering at fairly low level, 
you get cues, you need cues, because the thing, you're stabilizing it, it wasn't an FC1, it wasn't uh, auto-stabilized, you need a, a nice visual picture, you need a lot of resolution in that picture. Um, so off I went then to the United States as a customer this time of various simulation companies to update myself on the state, the current state of their capabilities. Now for trial purposes, they had taken a Blackhawk simulator and fitted it with one of the first computer-generated visual displays of the outside world. Well, I got in this thing and I just thought it was wonderful. There was no lag. It was black and white, and the visual scene was full of cartoon-type things. Tree, you know, trees looked like that, cut out and stuck there. Um, buildings were just cubes or circles. But it didn't matter, they provided the cues you wanted. Um, but the realism was zero. But all the cues were there, and I loved it, because I had not flown a visual display without lag before. I get out, and I'm having a chat to them, and up comes a shaven-headed marine, uh, and he was talking about his trip in it. And he just thought it was useless. He said, there's absolutely no way that I can learn anything from this simulator. And I said, well, wait a minute, look, if you, if you take off, uh, Osama bin Laden hadn't been invented then, but let's say he had, you, you take off, you go up to the cloud, you go that way, and you come down, and you're going to, got a bunch of guys, and, uh, you want to go to this collective farm, or Osama bin Laden's, whatever, and, and you break out of the cloud, and you look around you, and the trees all look like this, and the houses all look like that, do you say, ah, I don't know how to fly this helicopter, or do you say, hey, you've got funny-looking trees around here, haven't they? In other words, does realism matter if the cues are there? So he countered with, okay, yeah, but when I'm flying over the forest, this is sort of Vietnam days, when I'm flying over the forest, I can tell my height to 10 feet because the foliage... Uh, waves about under the particular downwash that I'm used to, and I can judge that height beautifully. He said, all the leaves get blown over and they look a different colour. I turned to the simulator engineer and I said, look, when the aeroplane gets 50, do you say 50 feet? Yeah, okay, 50 feet over the trees, can you change the colour or shape of the leaves? Yeah, he said. But no, uh, nobody wanted to know it wasn't realistic. Okay. Now the F-14. Um, I mentioned this short takeoff in a Harrier. Now it's not as bad as a catapult shot off a ship, but it is in the same category uh, of sort of putting you off a bit. So I felt that I just didn't know how any sort of motion base could represent a short takeoff. So I had heard that they had got an F-14. Um, Catapult simulator, so off I went to have a look at it. They took me to the corner of the hangar, and uh, they showed me a thing that didn't look all that different to the Lightning or Hunter. It was just dumped on the floor. It got a ladder up the side of it. Um, no sign of a motion base. None whatsoever. And I said, oh, what's that? I want to look at your catapult simulator. They said, yes, is it. I said, you've got to be joking. No, no, get in. So it had a bang seat and a working cockpit and all the rest of it, and a visual display uh, of a carrier flight deck and so on, which apparently was going to go, you know, like that when uh, when I took off. So I got myself all strapped in. They shut the lid, and they said, um, let us know when you're ready. I said, okay, you fire me off. And, and I thought, whoa. And I went off the end of that ship. I had no idea what was going on. And what they had put me in, of course, was a G-seat. I was strapped into a bang seat in the normal sort of way, and between my back and the seat itself was a bladder. And that blew up instantly and gave me this enormous sensation of a kick in the back. And the visual display of the carrier deck rushing past, so I became a convert of what could be done with specialised seats. Um... Just a few words now, if I may, about three simulators that I tried. 
which had 100% valid visual displays and perfect motion cues. They were, of course, airborne simulators. The first which I flew in 1967 was used for VSTOL research and belonged to the Canadian National Aeronautical Establishment. Okay, that's it. It was a helicopter. You see their National Aeronautical Establishment, National Research Council of Canada, blah, 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 blah. We're talking analog days, folks. So the simulator and its model had to be in boxes that were strapped to the skids. There's one on the right-hand side, and there was a similar one on the other side. If you took the lid off the box, that's what it looked like. And it reminded me of the telephone exchange in the old days at Dunsfold, lunchtime, when all the girls were trying to catch up with the gossip that was going on around the place. You know. But that's what an airborne analog computer looked like in 1967. Now the second was the Astra Hawk, ETPS, Empire Test Pilot School Astra Hawk, a training aid for would-be test pilots. Now in the front cockpit of this aeroplane, is where the student goes. And in the back cockpit is where the instructor goes. The front cockpit is full flyby wire, and the instructor in the back cockpit can set up the controls in the front cockpit to represent any type of aircraft within the height, speed, and G capability of the Hawk, which is considerable. But importantly, from a point of view of the the budding test pilot, they can put in all sorts of nasty things like lag or totally the wrong sensitivity or an unstable longitudinal aeroplane or whatever. All the things which in my day, uh, so many years earlier, the only way we could learn all these deficiencies about different aeroplanes was by flying a whole lot of different aeroplanes. I mean, it was an awful buying, but that's what we had to do. Dozens of them. Um, today, of course, it can be done so much more efficiently with an airborne simulator. Now, the third one was R.E. Bedford's later kinetic uh, VARC Harrier. Uh, VARC stands for Vector Thrust Advanced Aircraft Flight Control. So what we've got here in the back cockpit this time is a fly-by-wire system. And in the front cockpit, we have got a standard Harrier system. Now, the boffins at Bedford from 1971, because I went to the first, um, I went to the first meeting, um, they wanted to make flying jump jets easier. And they wanted to introduce fly-by-wire. They wanted to get rid of the nozzle lever. They wanted to do all the things that you can imagine. It took a long time to get this lot right. But in the end, they did. And my last flight ever in a Harrier was 1999 when I got out of the backseat of this thing after a couple of flights at Boscombe. And I said to the safety pilot in the front, it's marvellous, Justin, don't change a thing. And with sheer force of personality, he went over to the United States and he sold the concept of this, of this control system, which is called Unified, to the Joint Program Office of the Joint Strike Fighter. Brilliant. Now... The clever thing about this program, which will, I hope, appreciate, uh, will appeal to um, some of the scientists here today, was that they wanted to make all sorts of changes all the time to the software in that back seat. Naturally, that's what it's all about. You know, the, the rigmarole that you have to go through to get new software calibrated from an airworthiness point of view meant that months would go by between perhaps sorties looking at the same thing. So the boffins there realized they needed to be able to make the changes without going through any sort of airworthiness rigmarole. So they invented a thing called an IM, an independent monitor. Now this was another computer which was trained, and I'll come on to that in a second, and then sealed. 
And that computer knew the limits of normal human pilots when flying Harriers. In other words, they knew how quickly they moved the control, the throttle in the hover, how quickly they raised the nozzles in an axial transition. And if the system in the back, for whatever reason, started to approach those limits, then the system dumped itself, giving the human pilot in the front um, an aeroplane which was inside the possible envelope of recovery. Because we're talking of a single channel computer with a 100% authority over throttle, nozzle angle, tailplane angle at 500 knots, have the wings off just like that, if it failed. So this independent monitor was a brilliant concept. And to sit there in this Vark aeroplane, in the hover, in the back cockpit, on the system, and saying, oh, I, I would just like a bit more sensitivity. Uh, and you talk to the guy on the radio, he says, it's F8. And here's a little thing, and you F8, up a bit more. Yeah, fine. The system's engaged. Alright, and I am changing the characteristics of it while it's engaged. What a brilliant way of, of optimizing anything. Now the Americans tried to do a similar sort of job. Produce a fly-by-wire control system for a Harrier. And they chose to use a single-seater. I'm sorry, it may seem I'm locking Americans. I don't mean it to seem like that. But they chose a single-seater. So, and the problem was, of course, that they could only put Harrier pilots in a single-seater. The chap had to be preconditioned. With a two-seater, you can put all sorts of people in and look at these controls. Well, there we go. Um, I just thought that uh, that Vark Harrier and the independent monitor was a quite brilliant concept. Now, oh, that, that's me and Justin Payne's when I'd had my last trip at Boston. Um, it's a young man's business, you know, flying airplanes. It's not an old man's business. I, uh, I was, I don't know, 60-something, I suppose. I'd have to work it out, 99, I was 66. 66. Okay, I climbed up the buddy ladder, I strapped this thing on my back, I got this hat on, and, and I thought, God, oh, I'm knackered already, you know, and we haven't even started. <laughs> it did not used to be like that. Um, when we used to run at the airplane, jump in, go and fly, you know, and you didn't think anything of it. Youth is wasted on the young, all right? Okay, now, um, I'd just like to finish with a much lighter note. Um, I was lecturing at Toulouse a little while ago, and while I was there, I got the factory tour. And there was an A380 sim going, and I was allowed to have a go at it, and uh, it enabled me to use a very important life lesson. There's this Qantas sim. And so you walk in, imagine the, the Qantas crew inside, and uh, they're just going to get a break because there's another visitor come along. You know, you know what it's like when you're trying to get on with something. But they did look as if uh, they wanted a break, and they were very polite about the whole thing. And I was popped into the left-hand seat, um, somebody started to brief me on how to fly this airplane. I mean, can you imagine the visual assault of the cockpit? I mean, it's great, because all these screens, you know. So I thought, hang on a minute, um, and I had a look for airspeed, I found it. I had a look for heading, and I found it. And I had a look for altitude, and I found it. I said, can I do a visual circuit? And they said, oh, no, no, you, um, you don't do visual circuits in this sort of airplane. And I said, oh, please. And they all looked at each other. You can't. And I said, well, what's the stalling speed at the weight it is at the moment? That's all I want to know. And I'll do my 1.3 VS or whatever, you know. So I was told what the stalling speed was. So I decided what I would try and get airborne at. And I would do a 180, get down the downwind leg, do another 180, come in and land at 1.3 VS. Fine. So off I went, turned, and I don't know, I'd gone through about 40 degrees of turn, and I lost sight of the airfield because 
the roof of the simulator was such that. And straight away, one of the, con one of the Qantas guys, and I said, oh, I can't see the runway. One of the Qantas guys says, yeah, that's why we don't do visual circuits, you see. But I was trained and educated by the Royal Air Force. And in 1955, if you couldn't see the runway when you were downwind because of poor visibility or something, you did what was called a time circuit. So you looked at your watch and you, you decided how many fractions of a minute or minutes you would fly on the downwind leg to get a couple of miles downwind of the runway. Then you do another 180 and it would all appear. So I did all this, turned on the finals and there was the airfield, there was the runway. So I landed, using the ordinary perspective of the runway to help me judge a sensible approach angle. Then I realized I, I had got no idea. I was in this great big thing, and I had no idea where the ground was and um, height and all the rest of it. But I, I made a stab at it, and I got one of those ultimate greasers where you can't feel it just touch itself on the ground like that, just... Uh, and I thought, oh, and I thought, ooh, right, okay, I know what I do now. I kept the nose up, and I went through 120 knots, and I went through 100 knots, and I said, hey, doesn't it fly slowly? And there was a voice at the back said, you're on the ground. <laughs> and so that was where the life lesson came in, and um, I put the brakes on, stopped, and thought, quit while you are ahead. And uh, and I pushed the seat back, stood up and said, thank you very much, a nice little aeroplane, and walked out of the sim with these Qantas. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Your lovely audience, thank you for your attention. John, the scope and the sweep of that were truly amazing. It's not only the time you covered, but the range of things to do. And to hear the sorts of things, many of which we're still talking about now, uh, aspects of simulation, whether it's visual systems, motion systems, a number of the human factors, to hear how those impacted on you at various stages, various natures of, uh, of flying, whether it was test flying, evaluating new systems and, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, has been absolutely fascinating. Um, you mentioned that um, you fitted on the, the curve somewhere at the top end. I would say that's absolutely true. John is one of those, clearly one of those peoples who, uh, people who look at simulation and say, what can I, what can we get out of it? That has been enormously valuable to the simulation uh, community uh, as well. Um, and I think we all owe a, a gratitude to John for the sort of work he's done here. And not least to standing up against received wisdom uh, at the appropriate uh, times as well. And he clearly has the expertise and the authority from your flying career and your interest in simulation to be able to do that. So for that tour de force, on behalf of us all here, may I thank you very much indeed for a really excellent Edwin Edlink lecture. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you very much. Thank you.